Our call to worship is um, found in the back of your hymnals, responsive reading number 714, and it will be um, from Psalms 8. I'm going to read um, the, light, the light words, and you guys will follow with the, um, the bold print. <clears throat> 714. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. On the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Good morning. Today's Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 20 to 31, or in your pew Bible on pages 3 and 4. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The New Testament reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1. We're going to stop at 7. You can find that in the Pew Bible, page 1151 and 1152. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The Gospel reading this morning is Matthew 25, verses 14 to 28. That's in your Pew Bible, page 915 and 16. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown 
and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that then, when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. The older I get, the more I study, the longer I'm in the line of work that I'm in, the harder it feels like it is to reach, uh, read or teach the Scripture with integrity. Now let me clarify that. It sounds like an outrageous thing to say. You see, this last passage we just read has a particular context. What I'd like to talk about out of that passage is topical. That is to say, I want to bring us into this idea that I began last week and the theme that we're going to be continuing for a little while about how our work matters and participation in economies that sustain. So I would like to look at this passage from an investment point of view, and I will. But in order to be fair to the context, in order to be true to the text itself, in order to give it credit where it's due and to honor the intention of the writer of this passage, we have to place it where it belongs. We have to place it in a passage of Matthew where the second coming is talked about, where Jesus is talking about the end of time and the signs of the end of the time. We have to place it in a context where there's going to be a judgment and a separation of sheep and goats based on very clear criteria that are outlined in terms of the way we've treated Christ vis-a-vis the way we've treated one another, the way we've been able to see or not see the face of Jesus in those that we encounter and those that we've sought to love. So in this passage... What is very, very clearly being taught, primarily being taught, is that we have each been given in Christ spiritual gifts, responsibilities. We've received training according to our upbringing or according to our own studies or our education. We've been given opportunity, and we each have a context a place, a sphere of influence, of work, of study. And in this, this is the gold. These are the bags of gold. What we do with these matters as we contemplate the second coming. Some of us have a lot of responsibility and a lot of gifts and a lot of influence. Some of us have a little less. But the story is meant to illustrate that no one no matter how much or how little they possess, how many gifts they have or don't have, how large the sphere of influence they might have or don't have, all are responsible to the master to multiply the kingdom of God and prepare others, make it possible for others to enter the richness and the joy of the kingdom of heaven as we do. This is why it's such a shame at the end of this, the one with this little bit is so scared of this obligation that he hides it, just buries it, puts it away, makes sure it isn't destroyed or lost, but does nothing to grow it. 
In the Greek, the word for interest is literally the idea of having offspring. The money bears offspring. So when we grow or double our money, our money is having children. Isn't that wonderful? And there are ways that we could look at this passage to the original intent and hold our feet to the fire about our responsibility in light of the coming of Christ, light of our witness, in light of our giftedness, in light of our service. It's very tempting for me to take a nice long uh, diversion at this point and talk about some of your responses to nominating committee. See, you, you don't think you have a talent that you probably do hold in your hand. Or you're shy, or nervous, or scared, or don't feel like you could learn, or you don't want to. I'm, I don't know. But when we exercise our talents, the, parents, the parable says they grow. Isn't that shocking? The money has children. The bags of gold reproduce themselves. Where I want to take that this morning is not so uh, tightly connected to the original intention of the overall passage, but I think it works. Where I want to take it this morning is to say that among the many responsibilities we have as we participate in economies that work is the industry of investment. Now, this is becoming increasingly difficult because the wealth belongs to fewer and fewer people. There's a very interesting, a number of interesting studies, graphs, statements. uh, You can find these that the top 1% of earners now earn 40% of the wages. I hope I'm quoting that right. It's an outrageous statistic. The bottom 40% own less and have less than the top 1% in our, in our world, in our country. That's, that's the United States. That's not the rest of the world. So what's happening is there's a, a very unusual thing that's happening right now in our economy and in our lives where the distortion of wealth is shifting so radically toward the very, 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 very rich uh, at the expense of the very poor and even the middle class is is if you look at the graphs, it's virtually disappeared. You have this very shallow sort of uh, ridge and then this very steep curve that goes just way, 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 way up with the top 1% in terms of owning the nation's wealth and in terms of benefit. So to talk to us a group of average people who are struggling and clinging, if we can, to middle classdom, or may not even be there, seems disingenuous. How much extra, after all, do we have to invest? But there are two parts of the economy that we've, we've talked about and alluded to one of them last week. One is an economy of stewardship. Participating in the kingdom economy, that is to say, the economy of God's people. God's church, God's way, God's will. And he says, know this about ownership. I own everything. You have it but for a time. You cannot take it with you when you die. You will not be given back necessarily what it is that you had. I own everything. 
And so when we participate in that economy, when we support one another, when we lift one another up, when we serve one another, when we give of our tithes, our offerings, when we make sure that God's house is taken care of, there's a flourishing that takes place as a participation in that economy of God's grace and God's kingdom and God's will. That's a kind of investing. You see, when we invest in that kingdom, we're investing, as I mentioned last week, in places where robbers can't rob, thieves can't take, where rust and moth have no sway, where there is no such thing as loss. But there's another form of this economy, and I'm not going to spend much time on this. It's just the diligence of handling what it is that we do have well. Thinking about multiplying what we can as we look to our futures. I know that uh, with the economic turndown a few years ago, I was saying that my new retirement age was going to be about 87. And I know some of you laughed because you mirror that exactly. You know precisely what I'm talking about. Retirement no longer seems possible. What? Retire? No, 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 no. You work, you work, you work. And hopefully... uh, (laughs) Hopefully you work a long time because then you die. That's, that's kind of the idea that uh, we've been running with in the economy of late. When we go to our other passages, we're looking at something entirely different. We're looking at a created economy and a recreated economy. When we look at Genesis, and you all know the, the text, everything that was read today should be very familiar to you. And if it isn't, I would invite you to just think about it in terms of the beginning of the story and the end of the story. See, in the beginning, God creates, and he creates for a flourishing. You see, there isn't a bird in the sky or a pair of birds in the sky that he hopes will multiply into something. The skies are teeming with birds. Have you ever been to the Midwest and seen one of these swirls or flocks of birds that go by, and it'll darken a portion of the sky. There are just tens of thousands of them, all following some leader to who knows what, ducking and swirling. and The skies are, are just alive with life. And this is what God created and said was good. He creates a garden. It's a very special space where Adam and Eve can thrive, but there's also the rest of the earth and its vegetation and its landscape. The seas don't just have a few of each species either. There are just school after school after school of fish. The waters are rushing with life. Everything is good. Sin enters the economy of creation. That's the story. That's the way we've come to understand and frame it. Something happens that alters this. And no longer are we created just a little lower than the angels and just above creation. No longer is our relationship to creation one of simpatico. No longer is our relationship one where... Nothing is destroyed. But our relationship shifts. Life becomes harder. 
It's by the sweat of our brows that we'll live. And by the time we get with the end of the flood, it's predation that will help us survive. The ecology and economy shifts. And God says, no, someday I'm going to restore all things to the way it was in the beginning. I'm going to make all things good. This is our eschatological hope as well. This is the hope we place in the recreation that comes with the second coming of Jesus. This is when there'll be no more death and the tears are wiped from our eyes and so forth. But when we think about a creation that was declared good, what is our relationship to that creation? Even with the effect of sin, what is our relationship to the economy of today? You see, one of the things that concerns me among many things is that we in this culture have a consumerist approach to economy. Goods are purchased, and the idea is that most of them are either disposable or ultimately expendable. Even our, quote, durable goods kick it in five or ten years, 15 if we're lucky. And what do we do with these things that we've discarded? What do we do with these things that we're finished with? You know, we no longer have a garden that we go out and pick a bell pepper in. No, 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 no. We have a bell pepper that's been picked not quite ripe, that's been waxed and now has been put in cellophane or a bag of some kind or put on styrofoam and covered in plastic for us to buy. What does all of this do to the earth God said was good? Now, the danger here, of course, is obvious, at least it is to me. I can start to go absolutely stark raving mad if I think I have to be responsible for making choices that are lowest impact in every aspect of my life. And I don't think God wants me to live that way. And because I don't think he wants me to live that way, I don't think he wants you to live that way either. But if we're to participate in God's ecology and economy in a way that sustains, what ways might we begin to think about making creation good? God made it good and declared it good. In what ways do we as creatures, what work do we do that doesn't take away from that but makes it better or makes it good? Have you ever thought about humans improving on God's creation? I know most of you don't think that's possible. I'm not sure that in theory I think it's possible. I think in practice it is. You see, when I harvest a tree and make a chair that might last or be used for several generations, I have destroyed something but it's something renewable, isn't it? I can plant another tree that in time will grow. And with this beautiful chair that I've created, I now have something useful for the society, for the culture, for the community in which I've lived in. We've utilized earth resources to build a sanctuary, but we've dedicated it to the glory of God, and we gather in this space as people. It didn't occur naturally. 
Is this an evil we've created? Is this a bad thing that we've done? It might be if we've done it horribly and irresponsibly, if we've polluted everything in the process, if we've harvested indiscriminately, if we've been unwise in the way in which we've utilized resource. But when we come together and when we build something, it's glorious. This is why at 9-11, it's such a travesty that it happened, but it's an even bigger travesty that people could celebrate the destruction of the city. Have you ever thought about the millions of man-hours that go into something like this? The thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives that are touched in the economy of humankind in something like this? The way in which we interdepend and the way in which that's interrupted in something like this? You see, 9-11 was a tragedy not just because 3,000 people lost their lives that day. It was a tra- or not just because two interesting or tall buildings fell or because relationships between our country and several others deteriorated overnight or because we had a change of mindset about the way in which we were vulnerable in the world. It's partly a tragedy because something that had been beautifully thought out and constructed and involved millions of hours of man life vanished in a few minutes. It's not something to celebrate. We participate in creation and an economy and an ecology out of creation that helps us to thrive. But as Christians... Our work isn't just to participate in that economy blindly. As Christians, our work is to preserve the goodness of creation while we husband it and while we draw life from it and while we create those artifacts and those places and those things that feed us as a people and nurture us as a culture and help us collectively in different ways to reflect God more fully. You see, the corporate reflection of Jesus Christ takes into account that none of us are individually perfect, none of us are individually whole or complete, none of us has the capacity morally to rise above the failings that we inevitably come to. But collectively, God has looked over creation and said it's good, and even in sin, he said, you're redeemed. I've purchased you. You belong to me. I've bought you with a price. You're mine. And he sees us, and he blesses us, And he gifts us and grants us and asks us even in this state to partner and participate and work and share and live and grow in the economy and ecology of God's grace. 
So as you think about Psalm 8 and the psalmist singing this praise to creation, as you think about Genesis 1 and God declaring things good and everything thriving and teeming, as you think about Revelation 21 and the earth made new and all the sin and marring of sin taken away, what work will we engage in the economy and ecology of life to make the world a place that looks like God created it with all of the blessings that we've drawn from it. What will we do to preserve, to bless, to husband, to sustain, to nurture, to nourish, to clean, to care? How will we live responsibly in an economy that sustains? It's a miracle. It's all a miracle. And yet it's inevitably got its, its downsides. So today I just raise that flag and say, hello, Christians. You who are created in the image of God, you who bear God's image, God bearers, image bearers, how is God's image sustained in us? And how do we honor that image in the way in which we handle creation? What are we doing with the planet, with lives, with the economy and ecology and community that we share? and with the body of Christ has been called to reflect into the world. I can't answer it for you individually, but I can raise your awareness and say your work matters. What you do and how you do it in this world matters. May the grace of Jesus Christ help us all to live thoughtfully, not only as stewards of what we've been given, not just as worker bees in a larger picture of life, but as image bearers who believe in the goodness and the worth of God's creation. And now, Lord, thank you for this time in worship, and I ask that as we depart, you bless each of these, your people, with your grace, your presence, your hope, your truth, and with the glory of your creation. Amen.